Welcome to the Lubbers Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You are with Ian. And with Mike. And together we are getting towards the end of The Wine Dark Sea, the latest in the series of Aubrey Matra novels by our favourite author, Patrick O'Brien. So Mike, how were we doing with The Wine Dark Sea last week? Where might it be taking us this week? Oh, Ian, we, we were doing well Mm. Uh, very well at the beginning of chapter eight last time Stephen was reporting to sir joseph blaine that the plan to liberate peru was almost complete Stephen's excellent team of military religious and civil leaders then was undone by dutord coming ashore before dutord was turned over to the inquisition which he clearly like all of us was not expecting <laughs> Stephen fled for Chile with Eduardo when we left off last week. And this time, Tom Pullings makes an important discovery. Stephen gets his wish to see the high Andes and tires of the local cuisine. We meet a new ancient, a curious saint, a global mushroom, and a troubling dream before everything comes trashing down. Next time, Stephen, listen to the animals. <laughs> very good what can it all mean it's interesting last time we'd spent we'd spent a lot of the narrative of the previous chapter with Stephen, and we had been wondering what was happening to jack what was happening back in the world of the navy and thank goodness we get to go back into that world at the beginning of this chapter at least for a little while we start the chapter uh, in company with tom pullings it's early wednesday the east wind that was blowing jack aubrey and the cutter off has now died down Tom takes the doctor's skiff, his little dinghy, over to the island at the mouth of the harbour, climbs across it to the highest point, and looks out to survey the ocean. Tom spots what he's pretty sure is the Franklin bringing in a prize, and that means he can tell Father Panda, who's been calling every day to check in on Jack, he can tell Father Panda that Jack will soon be in. Tom has been worried, and to be honest, we've been worried as well. The doctor's been away... Sam's been coming every night for news of the captain. Sam has been advising Tom Pullings as well to close out the bargaining for the prizes, to stop all the shore leave and get ready, get the surprise stocked and ready to weigh because of what's going on in the town here. Tom and Mr. Adams have noticed that the people in the town are acting strange. Local merchants are all of a sudden pressing to be paid. Some coming at night to ask Tom to carry treasure for them down to Valparaiso. And this is all suggestive of a town where things are afoot. Now, Mr. Adams had heard lots of rumours, mostly that there's going to be trouble when the Viceroy returns because some soldiers and civilians had been misbehaving. And Mike, we all have a pretty good idea about what this upheaval is because we were paying attention in the last chapter. Tom Pullings sadly wasn't. That's right. Well... Tom's rowing the skiff, the doctor's skiff, back, and, and he's ignoring it. A lot of locals in canoes are crying out things like, you know, Murano, which we talked about last time, you know, kind of pig or anti-Semitic expression. They're calling him a pale heretic. So, you know, we're starting to see like that local turmoil there. Yeah. But he stops the canoe when he hears an expression in a naval voice. Oh, the <laughs> fucking sod. And he's like, wait a minute. I know that one. And he sees Jack, he sees the captain clinging to the stump of a mast in the Alistair's shattered launch. And, and you know, he can tell that Jack is kind of barely hanging on, making his final hail. I guess he's been trying to get Tom's attention. So Tom comes around in the skiff, 
passes them a line, gives them some cold tea, doesn't ask any questions. He just starts towing them back to the ship as hard as he can. He's never seen Jack look so destroyed. Even after that action with the Alistair, he's got this really ugly bloody bandage over his eye. He's got a beard. He's thin, drawn, barely recognizable. And Tom thinks he's moving like an old man. And and Jack and Johnson and Bonden are doing the best they can. They've kind of tried to make sweeps out of broken spars. Killick is bailing. And Joe Place and Ben are completely motionless, stretched out in the launch. But Tom's kind of taking stock and realizing they're just really not making much progress. His little skiff trying to pull this boat and the ebb is about to start coming out and they're going to get swept away in it. Yeah. And by the way, the fact that we can see what is probably the Franklin and the prize in the same moment as the cutter is coming ashore says all of Jack Aubrey's hurry to get away and his clever maneuvering overtaking Ben in the cutter and leaving Vidal behind in charge of the prize. All of that has come to naught. They were so close a few days ago, but they've only just pulled through and they're just like literally a few fractions of a mile ahead of the, uh, of the Franklin here over on the surprise, a hundred feet up young midshipman, one armed midshipman Reed sees a small boat towing a large one and figures out what this could be, calls for his glass, calls down to the deck to describe the scene and is interrupted by what we hear is the cry of all hands and the launching of boats regardless of new paint, not yet dry. So official naval life aboard the Surprise has woken up to just what an urgent situation this is. We go straight to the moment now where Jack comes aboard the Surprise to be welcomed aboard by Tom and the rest. He asks where the doctor is. And there's this slightly strange interlude here where learning that Stephen's been ashore for six days, been naturalizing in the mountains, Jack seems very kind of stoic about it. He just says, ah, very good, but is strangely disappointed. O'Brien says he's aware of an emptiness. But for now, Jack's got some physical needs to take care of. He goes down to his cabin. He drinks four pints of water, thinking that more might kill him. He looks in on place and Ben in their hammocks, which is a very touching little moment of care and leadership by him. More physical needs to attend to. He changes his clothes, eats six eggs with soft tack and a whole watermelon. We are described. That's quite the breakfast there. And is asleep on his cot almost as soon as his head goes down. Jack wakes after sunset in total silence. And if he was really in possession of his senses, I think he might be able to guess why there's silence. But to begin with, he's disoriented and he thinks, well, maybe, you know, am am I really here? Am I alive? Uh, He gives a little thanks for his delivery from from danger and calls out. And Killick's mate, Grimble, brings him some water tinged with wine and says that Captain Pullings had said that any sodders woke him would have a hundred lashes. So really nice bit of care there by Tom for the captain and a really nice care as well by Perdine and Killick as they care for Jack's wounds. And it's, it's really striking, Mike, that the description of, of Jack here as he receives pullings as looking almost like a man that might live as he carries on this discussion with pullings and they talk about Dutour and Sam Panda's arrival interrupts them. 
Yeah, Sam, O'Brien tells us, is even taller and more massive than the last time he sat down with his father. So Even more like his father. (laughs) Yeah, well put. Exactly right, Ian. And they're just delighted to see each other. And Sam is very concerned about Jack's eye and wounds. And despite Jack's assurances that he's okay, Jack is talking to him and he sees these silent tears falling down Sam's face. So Jack's relating the entire story about becoming embayed on the destroyed launch. And Jack calls for the ship's best supper and asks Sam if he's seen Matron, you know, seen the doctor. Now, Jack gives Sam the long backstory on Detard, you know, catches us all back up again and relates that even though he didn't like anything about Detard, he didn't want him to hang because of a lawyer's quibble. So he was trying to keep him on board the ship. And that, that kind of leads Jack to, you know, as he's, talking about Detour's merits or relative merits, he includes the fact that he knew Greek. And then Jack kind of says, oh, well, Sam, you know Greek. And and Sam, who we know is a real language scholar, says, well, a little, sir. You know, we're obliged to, you know, the New Testament being written in Greek. In Greek, cried Jack, his fork poised in the air. I had no idea. I thought it would naturally be written in, what did those wicked Jews speak? Hebrew, sir. Just so. But however, they wrote it in Greek. The clever dogs. I am amazed. Well, only the New Testament, sir. So we get at once, you know, this this cute Aubrey-like faux pas about his knowledge of history and, and the languages and stuff like that. But we also get this little insidious prejudice here, which yeah. I think, you know, Jack really doesn't mean, but he uses these terms. And, and I, I think that we've just been reminded with the Inquisition that we talked about so much last time, you know, with Murano's, with Castro, that these little pervasive prejudices have real world deadly consequences yeah. and maybe have been part of, of the undoing of Stephen's mission. You know, would Castro be a different man if he lived in a world that didn't have these little, little yeah. things here? The perils of unconscious bias, hey. That's right. That's right. He, he did finish up, though by saying that the Greek of the New Testament was not quite the same as Homer or Hesiod. So Homer, I think we're, we're across Homer. T- tell us a bit about Hesiod, Mike. Well, Hesiod's kind of a, you know, people have at various points in history debated who came first. And I think they've kind of settled on saying they're pretty much contemporaries, Hesiodic contemporary of Homer, mm. although the dates are a little bit uncertain. You know, certainly like Homer, he really helped establish Greek religious customs. He's often called the father of Greek didactic poetry. He and Homer together, the fathers of Greek epic poetry. And, and really, you know, as much as it appears he has written and as much as people wrote and put his names to things after his life, we only have a couple of works that have survived that we're pretty sure Hesiod wrote. Uh, Theogony, which is about the gods and the origin of the world, and, and a little mm. different than some of Homer's stuff. And then this fascinating book, Works and Days, describing the daily lives, including the lives of peasants, all kind of a morality tale about the need for honest, hard work in man's wretched life here. He's been said by some critics to serve as a useful corrective to Homer's more glorious portrayal of the world here. So it's fascinating, new, ancient, a fascinating yeah. new classicist that we bring in here. And unlike Homer and heroics, I think, you know, it's kind of a little ode to the fact that this chapter is going to bring us back to some real worldly stuff, too. Yeah, I think it could. 
Now, there's a little further round to this conversation as Jack remembers Dutour talking about the Olympic Games and Jack's recalling this book that he'd read in his youth about the seven sages, the men whose sayings are inscribed on the Temple of Apollo. And there's there's this, first of all, it sounds like a, a funny joke. Surely Sam, dropping down dead, shows a very wrong set of ideas in a sage. Very wrong, sir, indeed, said Sam, looking at his father with great affection. And this the scene kind of wraps up here as Sam realizes that Jack has fallen asleep and very tenderly kind of tiptoes away. But this reference to Kylon and the relationship between a father and son, I guess that's not an accident either, right? No, no, this Kylon, you know, this is one of the people who had, you know, his son had been one of the first winners in, in the first Olympic Games. And Kylon's so overcome by how proud he is of his son winning this medal that he drops down dead. So that's Jack's reference to surely, Sam, that's a little bit too much. But I think it's Jack's way of saying, I'm not dropping dead overseeing you, but I'm so excited to see you. And, and to hear O'Brien as Sam's listening to this story and realizing that his dad is trying to say, Sam, I love you so much. And, mm. and Sam, I think, always without acknowledging this thing because he doesn't want to embarrass the captain and his friends and family. You know, I think saying the same thing with his silent tears earlier, I love you so much. It's, yeah. you know, it's one of the things that endears me to the canon is these relationships between men and between women, but also amongst the men here. I love this. Yeah, yeah that's great. Well, Jack kind of returns to the point about Dutourd and finally gets to telling Sam about Stephen saying how impolitic it would for Dutourd to get loose. Now, Jack waits until the pudding comes in. He's trying to figure out how do I tell Sam why this could be so dangerous for Stephen without saying, oh, Stephen's an intelligence agent. So he says, oh, well, you know, Stephen might get in trouble because of his uh, opposition to slavery. <laughs> and Dutord knows how Stephen really feels and he could do him harm. And he begs Sam for Sam's help to get Dutord back on bed. Now, Sam says, I, I am yours to command. So it's like, yeah, whatever you want, dad, you know, I'm doing it here. But he does tell Jack that Dutord is now in the House of the Inquisition, which we talked about last time. Yeah. But unfortunately, before he's been arrested, he's done all the harm he can do. So Sam gives Jack this really nice exposition, all the stuff that we know yeah. that kind of catches Jack up on what's happened with Stephen, about all the people that were gathered together, how close they were to coming to independence before Dutard showed up, before Castro hired this mob to shout in the streets and stone foreigners and talk about foreign goal, before General Hurtado stepped back and the whole movement collapsed. And he tells Jack that Stephen has now been advised, along with some of these other key friends, to leave the country, that he's yeah. traveling in the high mountains with an experienced guide towards Chile and will meet the captain and the surprise in Valparaiso. So Sam's glad that Tom's already moved the ship out of the yard. You know, Sam's yeah. kind of giving Jack the same warnings about you got to be careful here because the Viceroy is going to be back and tells him, you know, you need to sell all your prizes. If you can't sell them here, you're not getting the price you want. Hey, take them to another port. Maybe take them down to Chile. Yeah. And as Sam's explaining all this in great detail, he sees that Jack has fallen asleep. And Sam, you know, it's, it's another of these what warms my heart, says quietly, and I'll write all this down and tell you again tomorrow night when I come back. He covers Jack up. And here's this great big Sam Panda who leaves the cabin, the now dark mm. cabin, without a sound. 
I just love it. Oh, it is great. It's a really touching scene. And more of Sam as well. Sam's a resourceful person and gives advice and he's a peer to Stephen in terms of giving political advice ashore to Jack. It's great. It's great. So Tom and Jack both now very alert to the need to be able to cut ties and get out of town pretty quickly. What about Stephen? Mm. Well, our, our point of view now shifts back to the world of Stephen up high in the Andes with his guide, Eduardo. He's been climbing up and down these high mountain peaks and passes for over a week, and he can feel it. He can feel the altitude in his head and lungs. They've begun to adapt to the thin air. He's at 9,000 feet, which is an absolutely eye-watering height. That's that's high for the European Alps already, and he's not done climbing. He's traveling with this guy, Eduardo, and with several Indians, many from Eduardo's tribe's home city, and they have a train of pack llamas carrying their goods, and Stephen and Eduardo have been hunting, and there's a lot of connections about or relating to their success as hunters in this next section. And some of it takes us quite far in terms of what's happening in the story and what's happening in Stephen's mind at the moment. We're going to get this note, though, I've, of something unusual in the offing. Eduardo already points out it's been a strange year for weather and a strange year for animal movements. And it wouldn't be O'Brien without a little bit of lavatory humor here. So the first point of reference here is a big six-foot-wide pile of guanaco dung. (laughs) And Eduardo explains the guanacos come from a great way off to come and all poop in the same place. Nothing has been added to this particular pile for months. And this is making Eduardo uneasy. And he's also feeling morose because he can't show Stephen all the highlights of the local wildlife scene that he'd promised. And they traveled together another day and another night. And all this time, Stephen's been unable to establish human relations with anybody else in the train, apart from Eduardo, nor with any of the other animals. And Mike, we're, we're getting a strong pointer here to Stephen being and feeling like an outsider. We've got all these differences between religious sects and tribes and groups of people and the anti-slaverists and the non-anti-slaverists and the pro-Spanish and the non-Spanish. Stephen is an outsider in the intersection of all of these groups. At least now he's not, he's only getting spat at by a few llamas, which is probably a, a bit of a relief for him. As the journey goes on, they've traveled on these remote roads. They're far from towns, far from frequented pathways. And Stephen's mind turns to Diana and Bridget. And this is the first of a couple of times in the chapter where Stephen's thoughts go in this direction. Was it right, he asks himself, was it right for a man to marry and then to sail off to the far side of the world for years on end? Mm. And he's pretty clearly thinking, potentially the answer is maybe not. And when all of a sudden there's an interruption, an Indian gives him a sharp crack on his knees and points out that Eduardo is trying to get his attention. So we might, I think we'll stick a pin in Stephen reflecting on his remoteness from Diana and, and come back to that later in the chapter. Good. Well, Eduardo tells Don Esteban, his, his you know, name that he always uses for Stephen, that he believes now, now he can finally show him something here. Stephen sees that they're very close to the crest that they've traveled towards for so long. They set off, the two of them, Eduardo and Stephen, they pass an old mine. And Stephen is trying really hard to control his violent grasp for breath and his pounding heart. As you said, Ian, you know, they're way up here. There's yeah. not much air here. Uh, and Eduardo is you're pointing out, look at the top of this, look at all these mountaintops that are visible. And he's naming them for Stephen. 
And then Eduardo says, I believe I shall take your breath away. And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> not the best choice of words. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you can't barely yeah, breathe here. Not permanently, but, we yeah, hope. Yeah, That's right. He's, he's trying to prepare Stephen for the next site. And they walk to the edge of a rocky outcrop and look down the slope. And Stephen sees what appears to be these 15-foot-high palm trees with these much higher spikes coming from the palm-like crown. So, you know, we're now in an area where, they're, you know, we're way above the tree line. There's no, there's not much, you know, but short grasses and stuff here. And here's this whole ball of these tall, tall tree-like things. Stephen heads down and then runs kind of unsteadily and goes, you know, mother of God, it's a bromeliad. And Stephen is astounded. He says, this is not mentioned. You know, he's got the best guy there is to the flora in Peru and Chile. He says, this guy doesn't even know these exist here. And then he's further astonished because there are all these minute green hummingbirds darting along to its flowers, taking absolutely no notice of Stephen. So we get this momentary flashback to the Buddhist enclave where, you know, all the wildlife is completely oblivious to being there these glorious, marvelous things of nature here. And these plants, Ian, is this unique to the Andes? Well, the the family of bromeliads are not unique to the Andes. Bromeliads include pineapples. These are these uh, plants that have hard kind of leaf cases on the outside of the body of the plant, often enclose something watery or fruity inside. So they're often grown in areas where, um, where water is short. But this particular one, he says, oh yeah, it's called a puya. And Mike, we think that Patrick O'Brien did a pretty good job with research here somehow, or at least he stumbled across it. There is a species of bromeliad called Puya remondii, also known as the Queen of the Andes. It's the largest of the bromeliads. If, if we get to share a picture, you're going to see just how big and tall and kind of spiky it is, almost like a cactus, but it's heart. It has this core that has the same structure as a pineapple. It's native to the high Andes. It was once hypothesized to be a, a, a protocarnivorous plant, a plant that could trap prey, but we now know that that's not the case. It was first described by a French scientist in 1830. So absolutely spot on. If it's a Puna Remondii that he's got in mind, then it wasn't known to Western science until a little while after. And it would absolutely be consistent for Stephen to be seeing this as a new nondescript thing. And there's a series of encounters with nature here in this part of the chapter and this is the first one and it's a it's a, it's a wondrous one this bromeliad familiar but very very unique and particular to the andes and it's wondrous and it's written about in this very kind of luscious and appealing way so happy times so far for stephen as he encounters nature and it's funny it, I, I almost got like the double-edged sword of, of this surprising times you know because we've had this okay the Gonacos always do this. They're not doing this anymore. Yeah. Oh, we don't expect any plants. Wow, there are these incredible plants and hummingbirds yeah, here. Yeah, of course. I'm, yeah, I'm almost yeah. getting this thing that we don't know what to expect going yeah. through here. And it's and it's phenomenal as as we go on this little journey here. Wow. So what could be coming next as we go up and up? Right. Well, a week later, they're 2,000 feet higher, and Stephen and Eduardo are walking on the flank of a volcano. So, my God, you know, I just can't even start to imagine this. And O'Brien does such a phenomenal job writing, you know, with these descriptions and everything. They're carrying their guns, they're trying to hunt, and they hope to get a look at some condors, which used to nest in this lofty rock face with this inaccessible ledge. And Eduardo finds some vicuña droppings. 
So he's thinking to himself, this is this is really low for a Vicuña. Again, the strange behaviors. And Stephen says, oh my gosh, that's great. Maybe we'll get a shot at him. And Eduardo says, well, uh, it would be really nice to leave him alone because he yeah. and his followers and the Incas have always protected the Vicuña. He says, even the Spaniards leave him alone. And there's this kind of implied... And Stephen, you're much better than the Spaniards, right? You don't want to do that. <laughs> um, Stephen says, no, no, the Vacuña is safe from him. But he's kind of surprised. He says, well, you know, but my poncho is made from Vacuña wool. And Stephen, as we'll find out, has a very, very valuable poncho there. <laughs> and Eduardo makes the comment that they are killed, as O'Brien writes, from time to time and by certain people and almost as if kind of a distraction points out oh look there's a condor you know we're, we're kind of back to master and commander oh look here's a bird here and o'brien writes stephen did not return to the vicuña eduardo was embarrassed and there was obviously some question of the old ways here he and his followers were no doubt practicing catholics but this did not prevent them from dipping one finger in their cup and holding it up to thank the sun before drinking, as their ancestors had done time out of mind. And there were other ceremonies of the same nature. So this really kind of interesting thing, again, O'Brien, a lot in this chapter, you know, a lot in this book about how we have old traditions and beliefs and how they kind of come and, and we've got clashes because of them, including internal clashes in ourselves about how do I accommodate all these different things? And we'll watch how this plays out. But meanwhile, this Vicuña, you know, we've been introduced last chapter, this smaller kind of relative of guanacos and llamas and everything else. Fascinating, fascinating animal. Yeah, so it's... An animal that's sacred to the indigenous people of the the Andes. Uh, it's a protected species in Peru even today. Back in the days of the Inca Empire, only the emperor could wear garments made out of vicuña wool. Despite being the most expensive wool in the world, currently I think Mike, the prices are four to six hundred US dollars per kilogram of wool of the vicuña, two hundred fifty to three hundred dollars an ounce for the yarn. The wool's harvested in a very ancient and time-honored way that doesn't do harm to the animal. So it's still, the, the animal itself is honored. For this shearing ceremony, many people come together, corralling all the vicuñas there with this mile-long rope made of traditional colored fibers. And this herding ceremony is still a big part of how people look after the vicuñas and get their wool. So this is a, a little bit of mysticism. We had wonder at the bromeliad. We've got this bit of mysticism with people's attitude to the vicuña. I wonder what attitudes to animals we're going to get next. Eduardo tells Stephen that they might see the condor chick peering down from the nest. So they're looking up at the nest and Eduardo speculates that we might see the chick peering down at us. And Stephen says, well, that's great. Let's climb up and we can look down and see inside the nest. Heavens no, cried Eduardo. We should never get down before sunset, and it is terrible to be caught by night on the Puna. Do but think of the terrible evening winds, the terrible morning winds, and the wicked cold. Nothing to eat, nothing to drink, no shelter at all. And with this warning ringing in their ears, they continue walking, and they hear a wild squealing neigh. They see some guanacos fleeing, and one guanaco standing defiantly facing them, rearing, waving its head, and standing unyielding as they approach. 
And Eduardo says, well, okay, this, this, is, this little fella here, he's been fighting. He points out the blood on the flanks of this guanaco. And having been very reverent just a few sentences ago about Vicuñas, now that we have a guanaco in front of us, he's going, you couldn't ask for a better shot or a better supper. And Mike, just before Stephen digs in and asks for an explanation here, it strikes me that this is a different imagery associated with an animal. We've got a sort of bloodthirsty, fighting, almost reckless animal standing its ground with blood on its flanks. And I'm just wondering if there's an echo there or a reminder for Stephen of the the bloodthirsty, kind of reckless fighting spirit of the soldiers and sailors that he's left behind. Maybe a little bit of vicarious jeopardy for Jack Aubrey as we carry on with Stephen's story here. Mm. Stephen's kind of confused here, and he says, but but I must not shoot him, right? You know, Eduardo, you just say he's a great shot, a great meal, but I'm, he's thinking back. And Eduardo says, why, Don Esteban, how can you speak so? He is no vicuña. He is much too big for a vicuña and the wrong color. He is a guanaco and a perfectly fair quarry for you. Ah, so Stephen <laughs> kneels, which really upsets the guanaco. He fires, it strikes him in the heart, and the animal gives this great bound, apparently collapsing in the longer grass. And walking over, Eduardo, who is now, O'Brien says, as cheerful as any European, describes all the wonderful meals they're going to have from this for days. But his usual stoic calm when you know things don't go well turns to undisguised dismay when they see the guanaco's last leap took him actually over a chasm, which is right behind this grass. And so the body is lying 200 feet below them with no way to get to it. Ah, so they've been, and, and we, we've heard a little bit more about this. We haven't talked about it. They've been so tired of eating the same things over and over again. That's why they're hunting so hard here. But uh, this is not to be had. Uh, well, it, if any of us listeners are feeling disappointment uh, and pangs of hunger at the idea of not being able to have your regular guanaco supper, then now is probably a good moment to just step away and go find yourself a plate of something. Mike and I are going to do the same, and we'll be right back after our usual short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. We hope you've enjoyed your minced guanaco shoulders or whatever it was going to be. Mike and I are fortified as well, so we're going to get on with it here. Another day, another round of hunting for Stephen Eduardo, high in the Puna. Puna, by the way, is the Andean or local name for the high treeless plateau in the Andes, not the Altiplano, not quite as high as that, but for this, at least by their standard, middling high plateau. It's also high enough that altitude sickness gets to be a concern. And so Puna is also an Andean term for being mountain sick. Now, good news, especially for the local guinea pig population, is that Eduardo spots and shoots a bird that is kind of called a partridge, not quite a partridge. And as they discuss the bird, this reminds Eduardo of a species of rhea that lives in the high Andes. And this is another unfamiliar a genus found a relative of many, many thousands of miles away from Stephen, where Stephen might have expected to find it. He's really amazed at the idea of a rear being all the way up here. Eduardo says, well, he hopes to show Stephen some, maybe soon after they leave the next monastery, which is five days away. 
Stephen, so excited to see the rears and also so excited to see the flamingos in the nearby salt lakes that they hit a cracking pace and they reached the monastery in four days instead of five. And Mike, there's another kind of funny humans underwhelming each other moment here as they arrive. The monks are really not happy. What the hell are you doing here? You know, today's right. Wednesday. Of course you're expected Thursday. Why didn't you send word that you'd arrive so early? <laughs> they have no food for that day, they say, apart from perhaps more of the guinea pig that Stephen and Eduardo have been working so hard to avoid eating. But thanks, B. They've got some wine, and that's going to get them at least partway to being refreshed. Yeah. And O'Brien does one of these things where the prior is saying, uh, giving thanks because they have wine. And Stephen goes right into writing that line down in his current letter to Diana. You know, he's telling her all about the monk's reception in the letter that night. He describes all the natural wonders uh, that he can't wait to see, you know, in great detail, including this area where it only rains once in 100 years. And as he's giving her all these details about the things he's seen as they travel over bare rock at 15,000 feet with snowy peaks on every hand, he even describes some of the volcanoes glowing red by night. All of these extreme conditions promising more extremities in all life forms. But Stephen says, there are some extremities I don't care for much. Uh, <laughs> among them is <laughs> the guinea pig that you mentioned, Ian. Exactly. He says, oh my gosh, it's such indifferent eating. But it dries, smokes, and salts so easily, is so abundant, and it travels so well in the cold, dry air, just like the native potato, which is also dried, frozen, dried again, and about as palatable as the guinea pig. And Stephen, you know, had gotten so tired of eating these that he was thrilled that he found some mushrooms. It, I should give you the Latin here, the same as the ones in Europe. What <laughs> is this Latin? I'll take a swing. It. Agaricus campestris, I think, which means thank you, mushroom. sir. Really. Thank yeah, you, yeah. thank you, thank you. But Stephen finds these. He's trying to make this dish a little better. He's mixing the mushrooms in when he warms it up. But Eduardo and his companions keep telling him that if he eats those, he's going to swell up and drop dead. And it angers them that Stephen keeps eating them for a week and hasn't died yet. Eduardo begs him to stop so that he doesn't bring misfortune upon the entire group here. Here we are, these sailor superstitions, the Indian superstitions, Stephen superstitions yeah. about a Friday for the meeting we had heard. And was it just a couple of chapters ago that the sailors were going, oh, anchovies, yeah, they're great, but they've got to die in the pan, otherwise they're poisoned. Right, right. <laughs> well, oh, well remembered again. Absolutely, exactly. Well, Stephen, you know, continues on to Diana saying that the Indians look upon him as an unwholesome being yeah. while admitting that, in, you know, Brian Ward's, he cannot congratulate them upon their looks either. Ah, <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's interesting. We're all so different, but we're all so alike in the way we have trouble with the differences here, with the different looks and beliefs and superstitions and experiences so while we're also very different at a meta level, we're also very much the same here. So here we've got these Indians thinking that Stephen is going to turn into a mushroom Jonah, if you will, yeah. here. But this mushroom, Ian, who's Latin, I stumble all over there. Is this thing real? Yeah. Agaricus compestris literally means mushroom of the field. It's pretty widespread in the world. It's not commercially cultivated, though, because it matures fast and it has a short shelf life sometimes known as the meadow mushroom or the pink bottom. It's also easily confused with toxic lookalikes. So there's um, a grain yeah. of truth in, in the caution that the, the local guys have got. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have confidence 
in picking out an, an edible mushroom from a toxic one high up in the Andes. But Stephen, Stephen's clearly pretty confident and his knowledge is ahead of the superstition that the, uh, the local Inca guys have got here. And as you were saying, Mike, he's busy writing about this in a letter to Diana and he's just wanting to share two things with Diana before he forgets. First of all, he says he's noticed that this high up, there are no ill smells. And I don't know if this is just to do with uh, piles of uh, guanaco poop or something else, but he's not smelling anything that's upsetting him. Or, or maybe he's got long COVID. No, right. <laughs> Second, he's about to write, but then his ink is frozen. As he's about to dip his pen into the inkwell one more time, he discovers it's got to the end of the day and the ink is frozen. Just how cold is it up here? So he wraps his vicuña poncho around him. As you say, Mike, super valuable item here and lays on his bed. And instead of writing to Diana, he's thinking about the conversations he'd had with Eduardo as they climbed that afternoon. And O'Brien's really playing with reported speech and shifting the narrative around a little bit here. He really likes not just telling the story in a sort of serial narrative here. And we go back to hear Eduardo's telling of the history of the families that were descended from the first great Inca conqueror. And the text says, it did not surprise Stephen to hear of bitter enmity between cousins, nor of feuds lasting from the earliest times to the present, nor indeed of brother murdering brother. They were all, after all, well-established precedents. But it did surprise him after a while to find that the general drift of his friend's conversation seemed more and more to be in the direction of outside support for one particular branch of the royal line, so that it might neutralize the other Quechua clans and unite a sufficient force of Indians and well-wishers to liberate at least Cusco, their ancestral home. And Mike, Stephen senses are clearly very acute here. He's picking this up in the background of the stories that Eduardo is telling. Uh, maybe that's going to have some relevance to the situation that they're in right now. Yeah, and, and Stephen's really surprised. You know, He sees Eduardo as this really intelligent person, and he's thinking, he's so intelligent, doesn't he realize how impossible this kind of scheme is going to be? There's going to be so many conflicting interests. It's going to be really unlikely that you're ever going to get these hostile groups to reconcile. Edward is forgetting the recent bloodbath of the last uprising, which was put down by the Spaniards with the help of Indians, some of those Indians of royal blood. So you know, not everybody is on this big liberation kick. And during the conversation, Stephen had hidden his surprise and hidden his disdain for the plan. And he had tried to tell himself, don't listen to this. You know, I, I want to forget these names, the genealogies. I don't want to know who's committed to this. I don't want to know who's likely to support the cause. So Stephen's kind of in intelligence agent mode now going, yeah, this is not data. I don't have a need to know this here. So, but he notices that, you know, he's laid down, covered himself with the poncho a little bit. And like a good intelligence agent, he's already rehearsing all these names in his list. So he's you know, committing them to memory, even though he doesn't want to. Luckily, a friar comes in with a charcoal brazier and says that the prior is inviting Stephen to attend a novena to St. Isidore of Seville, begging for the saint's intercession on behalf of all travelers. Mm. So not St. Francis, not St. Christopher, but St. Isidore. Mike, surely, surely, surely this is not an accident. Tell us there's some interesting stuff lying behind the choice of St. Isidore here. Well, it really is fascinating. I mean, clearly we've got Stephen and Eduardo in this you know, band of travelers. They're in need of saintly protection, so it makes sense. What a great novena. But in, in a tie into the book here, 
One of St. Isidore's claims to fame was that he converted the Visigothic kings who ruled the Iberian Peninsula at his time from the Arian heresy to Catholicism. And I'm sure not coincidentally, that same Arian heresy was kind of the cause of the earlier fight between the surprises religious sects at that love fest Yeah, we, we remember earlier, yeah. all these different beliefs about the nature of Trinity, you know, are God and Jesus of the same essence? Are they co-eternal together? You know, again, here we are, people wanting to completely spill blood over these things, but St. Isidore reconciled some of that. Now, Stephen would love St. Isidore because as, you know, sort of the Gothic barbarians were, were overturning the, the Western Roman Empire and sort of trampling on all this great knowledge of the ancients, St. Isidore wrote one of these first really comprehensive encyclopedias and captured so much of that knowledge, uh, knowledge that probably much of which would have been lost to the West otherwise. Now, Perhaps Stephen would have loved him because one legend about him says that his father, when Isidore was very young, saw him from a distance and thought he saw him surrounded by a swarm of bees attracted by honey pouring out of his mouth, that Isidore had almost taken the form of a beehive. And that, you know, his father took this vision to mean that, you know, his son would be a great teacher of of the church's doctrine, the bees, if you will, going forth from his mouth. Now, Certainly, Stephen would love that connection to bees. Jack and the crew of the Lively back in Post Captain, perhaps not so much. (laughs) Not so fond of it here. But we have to love him too, Ian, because in 1999, Isidore became the patron saint of computers and the internet. So perhaps maybe this is a good intercessor for podcasts. Yeah. I don't know because we're so tied to the internet. But Fascinatingly, as the Patrick O'Brien Muster book points out, none of these things make him particularly predisposed to be someone you would turn to to intercede on behalf of travelers. You know, mm. we've got saints for travelers here, but hey, he's a saint. He can do what he wants. And besides, he's way too good an Easter egg for O'Brien to let a, a little thing like this, you know, not particularly disposed to travels things stop him here. But I know a lot of our listeners out there know saints better than we do. Are we missing a reason why St. Isidore of Seville would be called upon to protect travelers? Please let us know. Hit us up in the socials. Yeah, please do. And we're not done with odd bits of self-reflection here for Stephen. After he's prayed his novena, the text says, Returning to his now warmer room from this exercise, Stephen fell into a dreaming sleep. Diana, sentenced to death for some unquestioned murder, stood before the judge in an informal court, guarded by a civil but reserved jaileress. She was wearing a nightgown, and the judge, a well-bred man obviously embarrassed by the situation and by his task, was slowly tying a hangman's knot in a fine new piece of white cordage. Diana's distress increased as the knot reached completion. She looked at Stephen, her eyes darkening with terror. He could do nothing. I'm like, this is really dark. I get this really strong reminder of dreams that Stephen has had in the past about Diana, including the kind of fever dream um, in his kind of drugged up state at the end of the surgeon's mate. Right. The balloon. And at the very least, this seems to me like Stephen reflecting on how far and remote he is from Diana, how bad he feels about the fact that he's putting himself, her husband, in jeopardy, and also that she might be in jeopardy, and he doesn't know. Like, the, the white cordage as a noose for her seems like 
naval life is where you get white corded. So I wonder if he sees that his naval excursion is is kind of taking Ooh. the life force out of her. It's a horrible, horrible thought. But there's more about the scene, I think, as well, that makes you think, huh, what's going on here? Yeah, this thing just sent chill bumps right up my arms. Agree with everything you said, Ian, right there. And for me, I've kind of had this mixed up thing in my brain anyways about, you know, why did he send Clarissa home to live with Diana? Clarissa, who had murdered a child. Diana, who's having problems with a child. Bridget, who is is clearly, as we've learned, a little different uh, than a child. And in parsing this a little bit, Diana sentenced to death for some unquestioned murder. Unquestioned. Hmm, not questioning it. Made me think of Clarissa murdering, having murdered a child. Perhaps Stephen worried about a drinking, depressed Diana and her lack of attachment to Bridget. Perhaps kind of crossing this Clarissa, Diana antipathy towards children here. Mm. Guarded by a civil but reserved jailerist. Well, this sounds like a great description of Clarissa, right? Guarded, civil, a little reserved here. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, maybe did, is this, you know, Diana killed her? Maybe Clarissa did, but Diana's being convicted here. She was wearing a nightgown, this whole you know, nightgown image in the midst of this thing. And I'm thinking, well, Stephen's got these sexual feelings towards both Diana and Clarissa. Yeah. And they both used their sexuality in, in different ways to get men to do what they wanted. Uh, but Clarissa, in in what Stephen is called, you know, in kind of a chaste way, and, and certainly nothing chaste about Diana here, uh-uh. this judge, a well-bred man, embarrassed by the situation. Now, I, I, I have to give credit to the gun room here. In an earlier discussion about this dream, some people said, well, maybe this judge is, is Patrick O'Brien wondering where to go with these yeah. characters here. You know, as you mentioned, and he's, he's already had this thing back in Sweden where kind of saw Stephen watching Diana freezing to death in this in this fever dream there. But and I, I couldn't help but thinking how many times we've had this man woman dynamic here and how men's ideas about women, this whole thing with Clarissa and the surprises here that this, you know, is this how any quote unquote well-bred man re- might react to these very unique women? And if they're not overcome by temptation and if they are tempted, how much more reason for him to be embarrassed about it? How much more reason for him to be sitting there making a hangman's knot, one made from new white cordage? And that that evokes this whole kind of Madonna whore continuum that you know, men so often place women on that we saw yeah. at work with the surprises, differing reactions to Clarissa. And then, as, as you said, yeah, those final sentences about Diana's distress, looking at Stephen, Stephen unable to help. Clearly, you know, that's where we are throughout this voyage. Diana needs help. Stephen's not there. You know, we just had a, a short while ago, Stephen thinking, is it right? No, no, you know, is kind of the implied. It's not right to be a world away from a wife and a new child. So I don't know, Dr. Freud, your thoughts, please take that well, cigar out of your mouth and answer. Well, you can see there are connections to the autobiographical world of what Right. Patrick O'Brien thought of his own connections to women, to his first marriage, to his really, really deep connection to Mary. Oh, lots, lots and lots to think about here. And his relations to his first children. His relations <laughs> to his first children. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it, it's almost a relief then, as we're thinking right. about this, when another friar comes into the room, waking Stephen up from this dream, thank heavens, telling him that Eduardo and his company are all packed and ready waiting for Stephen out front with the sun rising overhead. 
And I love the fact that anytime O'Brien wants us to remind us and the characters about the, the beauty of the natural world and to get some perspective, he writes about the sky. Right. So the sun is rising overhead and coming out, the western sky is still dark. And the text says, as he looked at it, Stephen remembered the words he had intended to write to Diana before he put his letter to the candle. The words were, in this still cold air, the stars do not twinkle, but hang there like a covey of planets. For there they were, clear beads of unwinking gold. He could not relish them, however. His dream still oppressed him. And he had to force a smile when Eduardo told him that he had reserved a piece of bread for their breakfast. Instead of dried potatoes, a piece of wheaten bread. And Mike, it's, besides being a lovely sort of wrapper on this very uneasy piece about Stephen and the, and the dream, it's nice as well that Eduardo emphasizes that the bread is wheaten. Uh, Eduardo trying to hold these two identities here of the, the ancient superstitious Inca, the non-wheat-eating Inca, and the modern Spanish-speaking European, or at least culturally European and culturally Catholic. And he's trying to emphasize to Stephen that Stephen is getting the benefit of something weird and associated with colonists and Spaniards and Catholics, namely a piece of wheat and bread as opposed to anything else. And, you know, it's, it, he doesn't have to eat potato, which is probably a good thing for him, right? Right, for sure. <laughs> that, that, that local tasteless potato. And there, there's almost kind of this juxtaposition between, okay, here are the stars not twinkling, but completely fixed like planets, you know, I, I yeah. mean, in terms of just there. And some, you know, I got to thinking, how the planets, you know, kind of for some of us foretell our movements or something for some people, not not us, not me. But over against this bread of life, this grace that intercedes that yeah. somehow frees us from our destiny at times here. I'm thinking, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. So with this all in the back of our minds, we're back with Stephen and Eduardo as they're riding along the um, the high plateau here and they hear a native howl far behind them. And rather than being a guanaco stamping its foot, this is a human. A messenger is running towards them carrying a colored pole. And Edward explains to Stephen that these are kipos, these message sticks that are used as a way to write a secret message. They have knotted cords with thin strips of cloth. They're capable of carrying a lot of information in a small space. He explains how the first knot holds the key to decoding the message. And as he reads the message, Eduardo's face closes down. He tells Stephen that what he thought would have been a message from his agent is in fact a warning that they must go no farther south, but must cut across via a high pass to catch Gayongus's ship at Arica, heading for Valparaiso. And apologizing for this quick change in direction, Edward says, I won't be able to show you the rears. I won't be able to show you the salt marshes, but we will see some interesting birds on a lake near the pass. And once again, Mike, we've got a, another interaction with nature as Stephen carries on on his journey up the mountaintops here. Stephen's not sure about whether Eduardo's being completely straight, though. He's pretty convinced that the message might actually have been warning Eduardo of hostile cousins in the movement for liberation, as Stephen has speculated about in his previous recollections of uh, uh, Eduardo's conversation. And he thinks, well, if it was just the ship, it would have stopped further south in Chile, outside of Peru. So Stephen's still got this uneasiness, this wariness in his mind here. So 
Now that we've got the message, Eduardo sends most of the escorting group back. He keeps only the abler-looking men, only the stronger beast, bigger packs. He's clearly getting ready for what is a tough journey. He's been quite lighthearted about it. I think he said something to Stephen like, oh, you won't mind going over a high pass. Right, right. But but off they go here. They merge with an old Inca road, and Eduardo's hoping to show Stephen some interesting lichen on a boulder formation from an old earthquake. And afraid that he might be disappointing Stephen, he promises more wonders on this lake that they're going to come to in three days' time. On the journey goes. Two days later, they can see this pass that they have to get over. It's another 5,000 feet up, so they are really, really high up. There's a post house there just down the slope from the very high pass. On the other side, there's a village that grows good potatoes and corn and barley. There's one of Eduardo's brother's silver mines. There are excellent llamas. They will, however, have to cross a chasm with the river flowing far below. And this crossing is going to take place on an ancient bridge. And Eduardo, again, is quite lighthearted. He says, oh, you're a sailor. You don't mind prodigious heights. And he goes on to say, well, we should reach the post house in time for us to go to the lake with Molina, the best llama, to carry all the ducks and geese that they'll shoot from the hundreds that will be there. And Stephen wanders to himself and thinks, well, if Eduardo's is mistaken about the birds as he is about Stephen's head for heights, then Molina the llama won't have very much to carry. And the text gives us Stephen's little inner thought here. He says, he had often heard, each time with deeper dismay, of the spidery Inca bridges on which intrepid Indians crossed torrents, raging a thousand feet below them even hauling immobilized animals over by means of a primitive windlass, the whole construction swaying wildly to and fro as even a single traveler reached the middle, the first false step being the last. Which gives us chills, I think, as well as giving Stephen chills. And he has this little moment. He sits and tries to calculate how long it would take to fall a thousand feet. He dismisses his maths as all wrong and decides it's at least long enough to make an act of contrition, to say a prayer confessing your sins. Well, they go on and on up at a really steep angle. Stephen's now leading his mule because it's so steep here. And his heart is beating like 120 strokes a minute. His eyesight is wavering. They stop because they've got this still even more perilous journey ahead and fortify themselves with mate, this this local drink there. And Stephen realizes that he's got a pretty bad case of mountain sickness. So he really dismounts very carefully. He's trying to hide this mountain sickness. He doesn't want to let on that it's really affecting him. And collecting himself, he then realizes, wait a minute, we're like right below the snow line. We're above 16,000 feet. And he's thinking, I've never been this high before. I have every right to be mountain sick. And, And this is not, as he says, this is no discreditable weakness here. Well, they all drink this mate, they eat, and then they roll the coca balls here that are going to fortify them. And the coca starts to take its effect. And now Stephen is like, you know, Superman leading his mule through the snow, telling Eduardo, no, no, I don't need to ride. I'm quite recovered. A sprightly popinjay, he says. And they reach the post house. And, and Stephen is very pleased with this fungus that Eduardo had promised that's growing on the rocks there. And Eduardo says, well, you know, let's rest for an hour and then we'll go to the lake. And that'll give us plenty of time before sunset. Stephen says, no, no, no. I really am ready to go right now. This is this is the coca speaking. <laughs> and I'm ready to see that alpine lake. Let's leave now. Wow. So uh, a bit of bravery. You might even say a bit of bravado on the part of Stephen here, perhaps inspired by the coca leaf. I've never heard of that happening before. 
Yeah, no. By the way, <laughs> I never saw that in the eighties ever. No, right? <laughs> exactly. But then I suspect many of us in the eighties weren't at sixteen thousand feet either. I've just been looking online. The highest point in the continental U.S. is uh, fifteen thousand feet, which is Mount Whitney uh, in the Sierra Nevada. So he's he's pretty high up here. So there is indeed this lake. It's a fascinating lake. It's been created by the action of earthquakes and floods from nearby glaciers. And when they saw it from afar, this lake was full of wildfowl. And now closer, but hidden from view, they are able to see even more kinds. What a wealth, they cry. They spend some time gathering a bit of a census of all these different kinds of birds. We have these flamingos. It's like a waking dream for Stephen. Some teal come racing across and they cock their guns to shoot them down. But Stephen lowers his gun saying, well, we haven't got a dog and I couldn't have brought them down on land and no man would go down on that lake unless he was collecting a two-headed phoenix. And Eduardo <laughs> says, well, well, actually, we'll bring some down over land and I'm expecting the lake to freeze hard so that in the morning we can head out over the frozen lake and collect the rest. So another little reminder of how extreme the climate is around them. You were talking about you know the highest point in North America. I couldn't help. I had to run down the, well, what about South America? 22,831 feet. So again, like you say, you know, it's a huge difference. And I'm starting to think, well, wait a minute, a mile's 5,280. These guys, these guys are way up there in some of these places. Unbelievable. Literally miles high. Yeah. yeah amazing. Still, it, and it's a place you wouldn't want to be, right? No, 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 no. Well, Stephen had said earlier about, you know, kind of feeling like this dreamlike state. And Eduardo is saying now he feels like he's in kind of a, a waking dream too, but but there's something strange. He notes the birds now, they're perpetually moving. The groups of birds are breaking up. There's just too much noise. The wildlife, all of the wildlife is uneasy. Even Molina, the, their llama, uh, the text says there's something unnatural. God send there may not be an earthquake. Amen, adds Stephen. And Eduardo, looking at all this, says he just really can't bring himself to kill anything this evening and suggests that, that maybe they just sit there, count and name the birds until a half hour before sunset, and then they'll, they'll head back to the post house here. And Eduardo's going to use the capus that he's brought along, and Stephen can, you know, the two of them can name them. He'll, he'll put it in his little knots, and then he'll read them back to Stephen tonight, and Stephen can write them down for his records. Uh, Stephen realizes, the text says, that there was a whole series of pieties active in Eduardo's breast, which had nothing to do with those of Christianity as it was ordinarily understood. Furthermore, he was much attached to the young man, and he had not seen him so moved before, even when he received the message from Cusco. So, wow, apparently they are having a moment here. So they sit, they talk, they note the animal's remarkable sense of the ominous and impending change, like the way animals are just before earthquakes and eruptions or eclipses even. But they're yeah. interrupted as this flock of geese flies straight at them at an extraordinary speed, passes over their heads, wheels all together, and pitch back down into the water, tearing the surface, sitting there in this tightly packed group with their necks stretched up, and then the gulls around them turning and turning and screaming and screaming. So, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm just about forewarned out of my seat here. I'm like, what in the world is going on here? Ah. Well, it's got very strangely, oddly tense to a really, really high pitch. 
and we find out straight away what's going on. It's a storm. There's a prodigious noise, a really great resounding thunderclap. And looking behind them, they see the snow of the two peaks on either side of the pass streaming out to leeward a mile long or more. The peaks and the pass itself all vanish from sight. They run for Molina, the llama. They run to pack their things. Stephen sees now there are no birds left on the lake at all. They're all pushing into the reeds for shelter. And Stephen and Eduardo run for it. There's a second thunderclap, a roar repeated several times, and now snow engulfs them. Eduardo and the llama know something about life on the mountains. They've thrown themselves down immediately, but Stephen's thrust about violently by the wind and flung against a rock. And thankfully, rescue is on hand because Eduardo finds him and ties a tether around Stephen's waist and tells him to keep moving for the love of God. It will be much easier when they reach the snow line. And it isn't easier. In the increasing darkness, they come out of the sheltering lee of that topmost ridge, and now, actually, they are receiving the full force of the blast. It's even windier than it was before. The space between the peaks is a downward torrent of air and snow, and in the moonlight, Eduardo finds a triangular cleft in the rock face. He clears the snow in the mouth of the cleft, thrusts Stephen in, follows him, drags the llama into the opening. The llama tries to heave itself in further. The llama clearly knows that he's not in a great situation here. And Eduardo shackles one bent knee of the llama and it lowers its long neck across them, its head on Stephen's knee. And Mike, all of a sudden, I mean, with with some really dramatic writing by O'Brien about the storm, all of the foreboding and all of the uneasiness about the natural world has just exploded around Eduardo and Stephen here. Yeah. Yeah, Eduardo apologizes for leading Don Esteban into this. He's saying, you know, I should have known there were all these signs. One of my companions told me this morning that this was a haunted, unlucky day. Mm. He says, but the wind should die with the midnight stars, or at least by the rising of the sun. And he offers the doctor a ball of coca leaves. Stephen, immobilized by his racing heart, unable to breathe, completely exhausted, doesn't even have the strength to try to grope for his pouch down in his clothes. And, and he ah, we've him. all been there. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. And magically in five minutes, the fatigue is gone. So Stephen now grabs his own pouch. And after another five minutes, he's feeling good. Got another coca ball in his cheek there. He's rearranging himself. He's grateful for the warmth of the llama's head. And the text reports mental comfort and a sense of divorce from time and immediate contingencies were already settling in his mind. I don't know, Ian. Better living through chemistry? Is this a, is this a good idea here? Well, I, I think they had some alternatives, to be honest, besides the recreational drugs. Um, they could have gone down the Han Solo route, right? <laughs> right. You know, I, what a great idea. You know, Remember when yeah, Solo you know, opens up the Tauntaun, sticks Luke inside to keep him from freezing on Hoth. Yeah. If, if only they'd brought their lightsaber. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure O'Brien could have seen The Empire Strikes Back before he wrote this book. So, you know, <laughs> maybe there was a... There was a cross-media reference there that was just waiting to be taken up. Who knows? Right, right. Or the yeah. force was not with him. Yeah, clearly not. <laughs> well, by the way, I remember noticing in the writing here that the cold is described as a thing. Yes. Um, and rather than saying the temperature dropped, it says the cold increased. Yes. Like the cold was a force reaching out to grab them. It was really, really um, unsettling, sort of supernatural tone 
to the whole of this episode here. I loved it. Yeah, I can't imagine the, the winds, almost avalanche-like conditions here. I mean, this thing was compelling. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's still cold. They're still in jeopardy. They're still in this cleft here. They spread out what clothes they have over themselves. They especially take care to cover their ears and nose and fingers for frostbite. And sleep seems out of the question, even without all the balls of coca. But at some point, Stephen must have fallen asleep because he was woken by the sound of his watch chiming at 5.30. He sees the mouth of the cleft almost completely covered in snow with a little line of light at the top. And he discovers that the head and neck of the llama are cold and stiff. The llama's dead. Stephen's leg, no longer under the poncho, has no sensibility at all. And Stephen calls out to wake Eduardo. Now, Eduardo wakes up and sweeps away the snow, reports that the pass is clear. Great news, the pass is clear. Three of his men are coming down toward them. So they seem to have made it through the night. He pulls the poor old llama away, and Stephen looks down at his morbid leg. Eduardo, my dear, he said hesitantly after a careful examination, I grieve to tell you that my leg is deeply frostbitten. If I'm fortunate, I may lose no more than some toes, but even in that case, I cannot do more than creep. Pray pass me a handful of snow. As he chafed the pallid leg and the ominously bluing foot with snow, Eduardo agreed. But, he said, pray do not take it to heart. Many of us have lost toes on the Puna without great harm. And as for your reaching Arica, why, never concern yourself at all. You shall have a Peruvian chair. I shall send down to the village and you will travel like Pashakutik Inca himself, cross the bridge, the hills and the valleys in a Peruvian chair. And that, Mike, is the end of chapter nine. Wow, 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 wow. Just, just when you think it can't get any worse. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Thank goodness Jack seems to be saved, at least is out of immediate peril here. And then it's all Stephen again in in this chapter. Uh, some beautiful descriptions of the Andes, chock full of nature and wildlife, lots of continuing reflections on why we act as we do and, and still bringing these characters to life, right? Yeah, absolutely. But bringing the characters to life. I, I've grown to really like Eduardo. I like the combination of helpfulness and mysticism and grumpiness about right. Eduardo. <laughs> I, I like how proud he is of his culture as well. This is not just any old chair. This is a Peruvian chair. And uh, we, we've had all these great glimpses, as you said already, Mike, about the differences in the cultures. The writing has been really stunning. I'd forgotten how gripping the writing was here about their high journey over the Andes and about the storm. C certainly on a par with the writing of any of the storm sequences, on a par with the writing about the chase of the Vaxamite mm -hmm. back in Desolation Island. Yeah, yeah. I, and, uh, you know, these, to me, these fascinating glimpses of people caught between cultures. You know, I, I remember on Game yeah. of Thrones, you know, the old gods and the new. <laughs> yeah. And the old gods and the new, you know, and, and thinking about what happens to local faith and customs and the ritual, even their day-to-day -day lives, you know, when another country, another faith, other peoples uh, and cultures moving on. But as fascinating as all that is, you know, I'm sitting here going, gosh, are, are we done with the more peril for Stephen? Is he going to lose this leg? Yeah. What's it's going to happen to him going over this Inca spider web swinging bridge in a Peruvian chair here. 
Um, and, and what's up with this whole new plot for liberation and Wardu and the clans of yeah. Inca royal families? I don't know. This, uh, this worries me. Yeah, it, it really does. Stephen's got all of this money from the crown, and it sounds like maybe Eduardo's going to want to take advantage of that. There's a whole other plot in the offing. And now that they're dropping off the mountains, they're still in Peru. They're headed for a Peruvian port. We, we thought they were going to be heading for Valparaiso, which I think is where the surprise is headed, but maybe that's not their immediate next destination. And last time we saw Jack... He went from avoiding drinking more than four pints of water because that might hurt him. And later on, we find out he's eaten what sounds like four suppers sitting with Sam. So he's sitting there eating and drinking to uh, to restore himself. But around him, there's a hostile port with the Viceroy about to return, people and merchants and officials all on edge. Mike, it's, uh, it's been an exciting time here. Yeah, I, I can help but wonder what happens next year. What happens when they make it to this Peruvian port? What is Jack going to get out of the other Peruvian port? You know, Stephen getting through the mountains. Uh, I, what happens next? I, I think there's only one thing for it, Ian. What do you say next week to just a little bit more of this final chapter of Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. <laughs> which really pisses, oops, sorry, <laughs> Stephen Neal's, which really upsets the Ganaco.